Caucasian woman in menopause, so I'm up against some pretty unshakable stigmas around my age, my worth, and my status in society. We don't tend to value older women for their wisdom and experience. Instead, we toss them to the side and make them feel invisible and irrelevant. Society seems to feel that our incline in age is equal to our decline in relevancy and intellect. It is honestly terrible the way we treat women. But if you think being a white woman in menopause is bad, how about being a black woman going through the same life change, but with a whole host of challenges white women never face? I've spoken to menopause doulas who specifically focus on black women and for good reason. Menopause isn't only different from woman to woman. It's different for women in different ethnicities and cultures and trans and gender expansive people. I recently moderated a panel at the BODCON and I was in awe listening to Oma Shade Bernie Scott. Oma Shade is a sought after nationally recognized speaker whose energy and authenticity have captured listeners and readers all over the place from Forbes to Prevention Magazine and beyond. Her love for people and passion for racial and gender equality has fueled her work and allows her to be at the forefront of conversations regarding reproductive and healing justice, death, dying and grief and menopause and aging for black women and women identified and gender expansive people. Omashade is the creator and curator of the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause, a must listen. Before you go check it out, have a listen here first to Omashade. Hi, Omashade. Hey, Jackie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good. We're both surviving the end of summer. <laughs> we're trying. Well, we're trying. <laughs> um, you know, you and I connected because I was moderating a panel that you were on at the BODCON conference a few mm -hmm. months ago, um, which was talking about body positivity. But our panel, I think, was the best because we weren't just talking about body positivity. We were talking about stigmas and how women are impacted by menopause, um, not just physically, but emotionally and how society and uh, the world treats us as we go through this. Now, with She 2.0, we've talked about menopause ad nauseum. We've talked about symptoms. We've talked about, you know, the, the challenges we have. But the one critical thing that we've learned in the last couple of months is that menopause while it's different for every woman, it's also different for women in different ethnicities and cultures. Mm -hmm. And you have been such an advocate for helping to understand that um, and, and bringing these stories to life, which I think is amazing. Um, you know, your Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause, I'm sure it's a Bible for your audience. Mm. So <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about it? And then I will... Um, have a few questions for you. Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me. Um, so I actually started the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause while I was on a sabbatical from social justice work. So um, I've been working in not-for-profits and social justice work since 1995. And at the end of 2018, after some really challenging experiences inside of our family and also in the community, I decided I, I needed to take a break. Um, and it was actually my oldest son, Che, who suggested that I make a creative sabbatical. He was like, while you're resting, while you're taking care of yourself and recharging, maybe do something creative. Like you're a really creative person. 
this might be a time when you don't have any other responsibilities and you've just got the flexibility to do something that you would like to do. And I was like, that's a, you know what, that's a, that's a good idea. So initially I was really curious about having conversations with other black women who are over 50. So that was primarily what I thought I wanted to do. I was like, I want to have conversations with black women, black femmes who are over 50 to kind of talk to them about how they're experiencing life, like, you know, where they are on their menopause journey, where they are midlife, you know, if they're older, like what's, what's the thing that makes you happy right now? How are you navigating the way your body's changing or anything that we wanted to talk about? And I, I reached out to a couple of folks that I am in community with who are also creatives here in the community where I live. And, and someone suggested that I do a podcast. And I was like, oh, well, you know, that's actually, that's something to consider. And so the person who is actually my podcast producer was the person who recommended that I do that. And Mariah also offered me the name. She's like, you know, we could call it the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause. And I thought that was funny. And I was like, actually, that probably is fairly accurate. Yeah. Um, and, and then we started thinking about, all right, well, whose stories do we want to center? Whose stories do we want to illuminate or elevate or amplify? Um, and I knew that if I only focused on women who identify like me, cis hetero black women, that I would be engaging in the erasure or invisibilization of other people who experience menopause who don't identify as women. So we, it's very intentional that we use the language and that our team and our partners and the guests that are on the show represent a diversity of Black voices and stories. So we um, say that we are engaged in culture and narrative shift that supports the normalizing of menopause and menopause care by centering the stories of Black women, women identified and gender expansive people. Because there, there, as much as we know about menopause, we know that there are also some truisms that we don't often talk about. One, menopause is not bound by gender. There are people who don't identify as women who have uteruses and fallopian tubes and ovaries who experience menopause and also feel like they are not being supported in their journey. Of course. Um, we also know that there are people who experience menopause way earlier than folk would ever anticipate, right? So mm -hmm. whether you're in your 20s and your 30s and you experience menopause because you've had ovarian insufficiency or ovarian failure or cervical cancer, or maybe you had gender affirming surgery and had a hysterectomy, like there are a lot of different reasons why a person in their 20s or their 30s can also experience menopause, but no one's talking to them about mm -hmm. their menopause experience. And so I wanted to be um, really um, conscientious and, and intentional about the diversity of stories that are going to be offered for folk to hear. One, because I want those stories to resonate. You know, I want someone to say, that's my story. And no one's ever asked, actually asked me my story before. Or I want people to say, you know what? I had no idea that that was a story that would be a part of somebody's menopause journey this is giving me an opportunity to reimagine or even unlearn some assumptions I make about who are the people who are going to experience menopause and when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So we've been very intentional about that. We are in our fourth season of the podcast. Um, we also host intergenerational 
um, storytelling um, gatherings. Um, we've done four in person and three virtual since the pandemic. Um, we've published an annual zine. The zine is called Messages from the Menopausal Multiverse. And I love are, that. <laughs> thank you. And we're publishing our um, third edition this fall that will focus on folkloric tales of women and aging um, across different cultures. So we have a story from Senegal, a story from Kenya, a story from Eastern Europe, and a Mesoamerican story. So we're going to kind of unpack that. Um, and then back in March, I decided that Maybe we can reach our audience um, in a different way. And so we launched a monthly IG Live series. Um, one's called What's Up Doc, where we talk to different types of doctors. So OBGYNs, um, nurse practitioners, uh, mental health professionals, people who are anthropologists, folk who do femi feminist studies or gender studies. Um, we have something called Nacho Mama's Menopause, where we talk about anything we want to talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that one. Right. Um, and then we have Millennial Mondays, which is an opportunity for us to talk to folk who would identify as millennials who have experienced menopause or who haven't, but have all kinds of questions and thoughts around what does it mean to still have ownership of your body as it gets older and changes and transforms? And what are the questions that we should be asking? And how can I be preparing for this journey? You know, and so that's been um, a really um, powerful way to connect with more people who don't necessarily want to listen to a podcast, but like the the flexibility of popping into an IG live and then popping out when they feel like they've, they've had their fill of the conversation. I love that because, you know, just going back to what you had said earlier, you really are changing the narrative of this mm -hmm. conversation. It's not just about symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and to your point, women we've learned uh, can go through menopause from like post-treatment, um, post-surgical treatment from cancer. Mm -hmm. And you know, in Canada, they're not given any information. They're given a stack of flyers to go home to explain their post-surgery recovery. And then like maybe one little leaflet that says, OPS, you're in menopause. Enjoy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they're doing the same thing here in the U.S. Um, everybody I've talked to who's had that on oncology appointment talk about the notebooks. Like I get this thick notebook of all of this information about my treatment and then a little pamphlet says oh and by the way you're going to experience menopause as a result of this treatment for this yeah like literally as you're reading this your body is volcanic and here yeah. you go here you go yeah, and that's really frustrating because perimenopause which is an area i find that is less understood than menopause, mm -hmm. um, that's our opportunity to, to acclimatize to what's happening. They mm -hmm. don't, you know, women who, who get it from post ovarian failure or mm -hmm. um, ovarian failure um, or post-surgical menopause, um, they don't have a chance to adapt. You know, it's mm -hmm. like running 120 kilometers an hour and hitting a wall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thing I like what you said is that I think the one thing I, I find all women say is menopause prior to what you and I are doing. It's a lonely experience. Yeah. You know, you don't really feel that you have anyone you can talk to is still a stigma. Mm -hmm. It is still tied to age and ageism and irrelevancy and redundancy. Um, but the fact that, you know, you're talking to not just women, but you're talking like to anyone who goes through menopause, you're making everyone feel heard. I think that's really important because those stories, they, they go beyond the, you know, stereotypical woman. Yeah. Absolutely. But the, 
the one thing that I have found in my own experience, my both of my grandmas were older and have passed on and my mom sort of forgets her own menopause journey. Um, we don't seem to have stories from the past as much as I'd hope because either we forget about them or the taboo was so strong back then that our own mothers didn't really understand it and didn't seek to understand it. It was something to be quiet about and just power through. So these transgenerational stories that you're doing are incredible. Um, I think that's really helpful for all of us to hear, you know, it's been around, it's going to be around forever. Yeah. So hearing women talk about it and how, um, how it transcends through different decades and, and different political movements, et cetera. I, I love those stories that you're doing. Mm, thank you. I also think, you know, I, which is something you said really resonated with me um, was about like, we don't have access to those stories from the past and for reasons, right? And so I, I think that the way we understand menstruation and our menstrual cycles is also indicative of like how we will understand menopause. Mm -hmm. So we have a, you know, this is, you know, and I, I've said to someone recently, I think, you know, menopause is not a spontaneous event. Menopause is related to your menstrual cycle ceasing. Right. It's yeah. like the, the ceasing of your of your cycle It's also this, again, the transformation of your hormones. And that is connected to when your period began. And I think that the way we understand, the way we are taught, the way we are supported, the communication we receive around the changes that we experience in our bodies as people who have uteruses, like. Some people feel like I didn't get any information when I started my period. So no, it's not. Right. So it's not surprising to then feel like you're also not getting the information that you should have as your period ends. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the one of the reasons why I'm so keen on doing intergenerational work is that the next generation of folk, as they begin their cycle, I, my hope is that folk will say to them, listen, this is going to be a long journey you know, it will have t twists and turns. It's going to be uniquely your own. And at some point it's going to end. And when it ends, you will also be going through a different part of your life. And I would want that young person as they were beginning their journey with their cycle to have a sense of, oh, this is what I can anticipate. This is what's going to happen. This is how I can learn and understand my body better and take care of my body as I'm navigating these changes, as opposed to having to wait until you're there and then ask people and say, hey, does anybody have any suggestions or what I can do? Right. And people are like, I have not, I got nothing. I got I, nothing. No, <laughs> go to sleep and wake up in 10 years when it's over. <laughs> right. <laughs> Chirogenically freeze yourself right. until this horrible phase is it's, gone. It's all gone. And then, and then, and then what happens? You show up in a, in a way in a society that doesn't value older people. So you might still feel not so great. Um, yeah. We have a case that's really um, newsworthy right now, uh, a TV station here. Um, there was three major TV hosts on that station. One of them retired at 71. I'm not maybe gonna get the numbers right, uh, a male. The other one, another male retired around, I don't know, 68, close to 70. And they just let the female hosts go. She grew her hair out over COVID, so it's gray. And she's in her mid fifties and they just let her go. Like we do not respect wow. and value the wisdom of women. Wow. And you know, it's really bothersome because if you think about 
how much we've had to learn mm-hmm. through our own medical journeys. Mm-hmm. So we've acquired a lot of wisdom, especially mm-hmm. for what you're doing and I'm doing. I mean, I've never been this invested in a topic in my life, but um, why would you discount all that critical information? Because mm-hmm. with age comes wisdom. That's mm-hmm. not just a bumper sticker. That's mm-hmm. actually the truth. So. Mm-hmm. It's really, it is disappointing to see that, but I feel in my own community um, and many women that we had spoken to over the past three years, a lot of women are still hesitant to admit that they might be in perimenopause because to them, there is a direct correlation to being old old, and invisible. Right. And, you know, like that, that alone is the number one reason I don't get a lot of comments. I get mostly DMs. Like just, mm-hmm. And you can't tell women to shout it out. There's where, you know, we want to shout it out, but then we look around us and go, yeah, they don't really want us to shout it out yet. Yeah, I, I get the same thing, Jackie. It's very interesting. I said to our producer, I said, I think that when we offer people an opportunity to engage, make comments, make suggestions, tell us what they want to hear, there's this real tricky dynamic of, like you said, people associate menopause with aging and then aging is associated with death and dying. Yeah. So what you're, what you're saying to a person is you have gotten to a certain part of your life where you can see that you're in a different stage. You know, there are things that you've experienced, things that you know, there's an understanding you have about your own mortality that's probably becoming more clear. And to have someone have a conversation with you about an ending of something may not feel accessible. It might feel scary. Um, it, could, it could create a lot of emotional responses. And so I get the same thing. I get a lot of DMs from people who are like, I don't know what's happening. I feel really isolated. I'm so glad that I found you. I didn't even really want to have this conversation. When I saw your platform, I was like, I don't want to have this conversation. And then I listened and I was like, okay, maybe I can have this conversation. I think what ultimately what we're trying to do is to give people permission Mm -hmm. to access their own story right? Mm-hmm. You, there's a story that each of us have. You have your story, Jackie, I have mine. So what, what does it mean to have someone really support you in accessing your own story? And then to also provide you support in accessing information, materials, resources, you know, uh, you know data, things that you need to make decisions Mm-hmm. Um, around wherever you are in your journey. And it's a really powerful thing to first begin, though, with that story. It's like there's a lot of ways that we've constructed stories about being an older woman, being a menopausal woman. There's so much um, stereotypes out there about what an older woman looks like. And all of the work that we've done around like maternal mortality and making sure that um, people who are pregnant, who are going returning to work and the rights that they have and how they can, you know, can breastfeed at work and all, you know, can they can lactate at work. None of that is available to us as menopausal people. So this person who was terminated from a high profile job. With no in, warning. With no warning in their 50s because they likely is ageism because they've gotten older, which is mm-hmm. also a function of patriarchy is like, how is how is that they would not have done that if she were pregnant i would hope now they might they might 
Mm-hmm. But certainly there have been strides that have been made. And so what does it look like for us to put protections in place to advocate for better policies that protect us as menopausal people or people who are getting older in the workplace, around housing, in our relationships, with access to health care? All of those things should be available to us. Absolutely. Well, I have to say the patriarchy is strong in Canadian broadcast Mm. Um, (laughs) and in a lot of, you know, a lot of industry. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're absolutely right on the workplace environment. There is a very frighteningly high percentage of women who leave the C-suite, which is, you know, that's when you're going to start hitting menopause is right. that sort of point in your career where you've worked so hard now you're there that's right and whammo you have menopause and you forget things and you know um there's no support there if you're pregnant and you forget something and you screw up on the job you have baby brain it's really cute and they have a baby shower for you <laughs> when, that's right <laughs> when you do it when you're menopausal you're like oh that old geezer like right let's get right. the walking papers ready yeah like you there's zero support but I think you and I have both noticed how much the UK is really putting an emphasis on supporting women in the workplace mm-hmm. and in workplace policy and insurance policies like healthcare. I we just don't see that here yet. But I mm-hmm. also feel like when I take a little look around the world, um, menopause is viewed very differently there. It's it's far more progressive. I'm shocked. I used to think North America, we were pretty advanced. Mm -hmm. And as we've had conversations with women in different countries, I realize how archaic our thinking is in so Mm -hmm. many ways, but women's health, wow. And and the way that we, our perspective on aging in this continent is pretty Mm -hmm. grim and pretty backwards. It is, it is, it is. And it's amazing to me that when you have an opportunity, like you said, to have a conversation with someone who lives in a different culture, in a different context, what they have access to, the ways that they're able to take care of themselves, it gives you a sense of like, oh, well, we have a blueprint. We have an, we have things that we can actually shift and change. Um, but part of that shift and change has to be a change in culture. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why I feel like it's, it's taking a lot of different approaches for us um, to get where we need to be. So folk who are focusing on healthcare, folk who are focusing on policy or advocacy, folk who are focusing on culture shift, like it's taking all of us to um, create this really robust menopause ecosystem that will help us right now, but also future generations of folk who experience it. Um, you had mentioned earlier, and I've seen it in your content and your podcast, you use the term femme mm-hmm. and crone. Crone? Crone. Mm-hmm. Crone. Um, I just, I had read your definition and your explanation, but I wonder if you could share that because what I find interesting is I had read that before we spoke today. And then when we started this conversation, you mentioned changing the narrative and telling new stories. I think part of telling new stories is using new language. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like you were sort of doing that there. Can you mm-hmm. explain what you mean by femme and what you mean by crumb? Sure. So I think it's really important for me to be clear that I don't identify as a femme. Um, I identify as a cis hetero woman. And so Um, I get to determine my identity um, kind of based on 
I still identify in the same way that I was identified when I was born, which is why I say I'm cis. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why I say, I, I used to say cishet um, or cishetero because I also identify as a heterosexual person currently. That might change. I don't know. Because <laughs> um, we're all evolving. I think everything is on a I, I think we're more fluid than we like to admit. I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, and uh, the reason why we are very um, intentional about using the language of femme or women identified or gender expansive is that those are gender identifiers for people who identify outside of the binary um, of male and female. So typically when you talk to someone, they're like, oh, well, were they a man or were they a woman? It's not that it's not that clear is um, is way more nuanced. Um, and we know that the binary um, is, is actually a construct, you know, the way that we understand gender, not around how we understand sex. So like when you are born, you are assigned a particular sex based on your sexual organs and your genitalia, but how you gender identify is really a personal decision around how you feel, how you, how you understand yourself, what you believe to be true about yourself. And that is an evolution. And it's also a very personal um, identifier. So we use the language of sim or use the language of women identified or gender expansive. So that way people who are experiencing menopause who don't identify inside of the binary, which they shouldn't have to, mm-hmm. um, will be able to see that their story um, their identity, their journey, their experience is respected, it's affirmed, it's valid, it's elevated, it's also centered. And so we've had a variety of guests who identify as femme or women identified or women or gender expansive or gender queer. And every time that that happens, I don't place a definition on that person. I ask that person to share with me how they define it for themselves, which is to me like the ultimate part of bodily autonomy and agency is for you to be able to say to someone, this is what this means for me. So I don't, I try my best um, not to ascribe a a specific definition. What Mm -hmm. I try to say to people is like, we are providing a space um, of um, intentional story that exists outside of the binary. And that means that we will be explicit about whose stories we are offering and sharing, but that when we talk to those individuals, they also will be able to share specifically how they identify and what that means for them. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as crone is concerned, um, in a lot of um, earth-based traditions or traditions that people would consider kind of pagan traditions, or traditions that focus on the feminine divine, the crone is the last aspect of a journey of a person who is a woman or a woman identified person. So you've got the maid, the mother and the crone. So in that kind of spectrum, you've got a person before they begin their menstrual cycle and they call that person the maid. Sometimes the maid is um, associated with the new moon. So people who are um, follow lunar astrology or they follow moon cycles or lunar cycles they would associate made energy with newness with the with the new moon um the mother energy would be associated with the full moon 
And we're also clear that mothering um, is not bound necessarily by the fact that you've either been pregnant, want to be pregnant, had children, want to have children or didn't have children or couldn't have children. Like mothering is about your relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about nurturing. It's about the interpersonal connections that you have with people. It is beyond um, our sometimes very um, myopic view of like what it means to be a mother or engage in mothering. And so I don't make an assumption if somebody were to identify inside of that mother aspect or that full moon aspect that they are a mother of a physical child, but that they have actually engaged in mothering, which may have been just for themselves, which Mm -hmm. is really important for us to um, acknowledge. And then the crone is the, that, that dark side of the moon that, um, older wise woman energy um and oftentimes which is why this this zine that we're focusing on this time around folklore and aging is that older women in most folkloric tales are problematic yes right cranky cranky ugly (laughs) ugly vengeful yeah um not physically broke down. Um, they are either deadly or they are engaging in um, trickster energy where they appear to be one way when they really are something else. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like all of these dynamics that come to mind that are stereotypes and tropes that essentially I think are born out of patriarchy, not wanting older women to own their power. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Because they have the wisdom and that's a dangerous tool. Wisdom, wis- the wisdom, the role that they play inside of their families and their communities, their experiences, um, the things that they're able to access now because they've lived a longer life. So then what we do is we problematize them. You don't want to talk to the old woman. The old woman's crazy. You don't want to talk to the old woman. She eats children. You don't want to <laughs> right? Nasty habit. Now, oh, it's a terrible, terrible habit. She doesn't eat children she eats the men so it's like you know <laughs> it's like all of these things right Jackie and so you're just kind of like oh I don't want to be an old woman because I don't want to be perceived as being mean or cranky or potentially murderous or vengeful and so what would happen if we were able to flip that narrative and say I don't buy that I don't believe that we can talk about the narrative that's actually true. It's not a new narrative. It's actually, how do we illuminate the true narrative? There are ways that we show up that's much more complex and dynamic, certainly. But if you're more curious about why I'm showing up that way, and you're curious about my humanity, then maybe what you realize is that I'm not rageful. Maybe you realize I'm I'm grieving. Or maybe you realize that, I am, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not presenting myself to be one way or the other. I'm setting a proper boundary. You yeah. know, so there, there are different things that I think we could flip this narrative of the crone and, and, and really understand that what the crone represents is a physical embodiment of wisdom, of a lived journey, of a long journey, of expertise, um, of perspective. And then I also would like for us to change the way we interact with older women. So it's less transactional and it's more about a, a kind of a spiritual reciprocity. So the way that we learn from each other 
Um, you're learning from me, but I'm also learning from you. I might be offering you perspective, but offer me perspective too, so yeah. that there, there's it's, it's less transactional. And because I, I do feel like that often kind of happens as we get into our 50s and our 60s, and we have people who reach out to us and they're like, I would really like to pick your brain, or I, you know, you have so much wisdom, or I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if you're open to coaching me or being a mentor. You're know, like, well, what would it look like if we actually just were in a relationship? That was mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And treated um, the elder women as equals, as yes. opposed to this fragile. Oh, you know, we we tend to talk to uh, much elderly people with the baby voices that we talk to our kids with, meaning we feel like they are infantile and not capable of understanding. And uh, that to me would be like being trapped in my own body if I was being Mm. spoken to like that. I find the crone thing interesting because um, when I first started doing some research into the symptoms around menopause and started going through my own symptoms, I started looking at, my daughter was quite young at the time, the wicked witch in all the Mm. books. And I was like, ah, she is not wicked. She's menopausal. She's menopausal. <laughs> She's got the osteoporosis, you know, the back hunched over. Yes. She's got the facial hair. She's got like the wart, you know, her hair is is losing that like gloss and becoming dry and frizzy. She's angry. I don't blame her. Right. And you know, if I could cast a spell on people, we'd all be in trouble. So I get her. (laughs) I get her. I also feel like, wow, what a way to tell women it's over. Now you're gone. Mm -hmm. Send them off into into a cabin in the woods or somewhere with a cauldron and just make sure no one bothers with you anymore. And make sure that a younger woman kills her. Yes. Yes. Right. So this is, you know, it is, it is these narratives. Like I think it's important for us to interrogate the narratives that we've been given about the transformations that we go through in our lifetime as people who identify as women or people who have uteruses. And I think this is what you just did this whole archetype of the witch you know one of the um, archetypes we're going to talk about in the zine is baba yaga and baba yaga is a slavic like folkloric tale and you know kind of has a very mutable energy um she's scary she often eats children she can heal but she also can curse and i was like and she also lives in a house that has chicken legs so she can up, up and move whenever she feels like it oh my God. <laughs> And I'm very curious about Baba Yaga in terms of she actually um, obliges you with the energy that you give her. So if you step to Baba Yaga with respect and you affirm her and you are kind and gracious and grateful, she blesses you. She can help heal you. She can help point you in the direction of the things that are accessible to you in the forest. It can help heal your body. She, you know, she'll she'll look out for you. But if you approach her with disrespect or if you're ungrateful or if you curse at her, if you tease her, if you're mean to her, she's going to let you have it. Well, isn't that true of life? Like we attract a certain kind of energy. I think so. And we get what we give. It's a really great lesson. I don't know why there's all this children eating stuff going on, but 
that is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I think where did it come from? <laughs> I don't even know. I need to do a deeper dive to kind of understand the whole idea about the ingesting of your children or of men and like I'm, the whole, the eating aspect. I'm very curious about that. We're going to well. find out that was all written by a man, of course. I'm sure. Right? I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, on from poor diet choices. Um, the one big thing that I find fascinating about menopause, and I started to get to this earlier, but you know, menopause, I start going off on these tangents. Um, Women experience it differently from women to women, but women experience it differently in different cultures based Mm -hmm. on how we're supported and we talk about it and give perspective to it. But also I have been told um, women have different intensity of symptoms, Mm -hmm. maybe more propensity towards different symptoms in different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to a a menopause doula here. Do you know what that is? That's exciting. I I know. know. I know. I'm I'm a birth doula. So I'm excited to know that there's a menopause doula. Well, there is. And um, I'm not sure. Like we have a few of them in Ontario. And I think there's one in BC. But it's becoming more of a thing, which is very hopeful. But um, the woman I spoke to um, specifically acts as a doula for women of color because she knows their experience is different. Mm. And I found that fascinating because, you know, that not only is she supporting someone through menopause, she's also understanding that for them, whether it's living in Toronto or whether it's a familial hereditary thing, she understands mm-hmm. what what these women are up against beyond just their symptoms, mm-hmm. you know, and women in different cultures, some of them are praised. I mean, I, from my understanding in Indigenous culture, women are praised and elderly women are not eating kids. They are very highly regarded. That's right. That's right. So That's right. What can you tell me about, you know, women of color, I, and I should say, people with uteruses, Mm -hmm. Um, like how is, is it different? Am I hearing a rumor? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not a rumor. It's, it's, um, so here's a couple of things, right? So oftentimes we'll hear people make mention of the SWAN study, right? So the SWAN study was the largest, longest longitudinal study around women's health and the kind of tucked inside of this study was a section around menopause. And then tucked inside that was some statements or data around the fact that African-American women or Latinx women, Asian women or indigenous women might experience menopause differently. And so they kind of talked about the different ways that can happen. So for example, um, black women or black identified people may experience menopause earlier. They may have more intense um, vasomotor symptoms. So their hot, so flashes, the hot flashes, the hot flashes may be way more intense and last longer. Um, they also may have issues around the night sweats and insomnia. And so part of what I would like to happen if I had my magic wand is that, <laughs> right. Is that there would be, um, an update to the SWAN study with a like a more robust mm-hmm. intersectional research that did a deeper dive into the context of the why. So yes, there's nothing physiologically different between you and I, right? Mm-hmm. So however, why? So however, you and I, um, we live in different um, cultures and communities. We live in different countries. 
we live we live um, different experiences. I have a different experience as a black Southern woman, right? Of course. And so what we know to be true is that stress and stress that causes an increase in your cortisol and that can also impact your hot flash or your insomnia or your mm-hmm. night sweats or your brain fog. So if a person says, yeah, you know, black women may experience menopause earlier or have more intense symptoms while they're perimenopausal. My question is, why do you think that is? What is the context that this person is experiencing inside their culture, their society, their families, their communities that might increase their stress levels, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't assume that people automatically have a high stress level because they're a black person. I also know that living in a society where white supremacy is a real thing, it is, it is very rare to meet a person who identifies as a black person who says, I've never had any experience with racism. Exactly. It's a rare occurrence. And so depending on who you are and where you live, what your socioeconomic status is, your educational background, it's all the things that make up who you are as an intersectional person. Mm -hmm. Then certainly it makes sense to me that I might have more intense hot flashes, not because I'm different from you physiologically, but just different lived circumstances and experiences. And I may be interacting with structural racism or systemic oppression in a different way that also increases my stress level. It Mm -hmm. uh, impacts my mental health. And so how I'm navigating menopause will look different because of that context. And when we, when we divorce ourselves from that context, when we act like that's not true. And when we also divorce ourselves from the, the reality and the truisms around health disparities and yes. we invisibilize that, then what you often will find is a person, a Black person or a Latinx person or Indigenous person saying, this is my experience and I don't know what is going on and I'm having a hard time and it's very different, it's very dynamic. And it's important to ask this person all of these questions to really understand the context of their life and what they're experiencing. So also those those women or people mm-hmm. going through menopause, like they're also looking at resources that are generic, right? All, mm-hmm. all studies done mostly on white women. Mm-hmm. So it's hard f- to relate and get that in from, and then you would probably read that going, but that doesn't relate to me. I'm not, that's not happening to me. It's, it's worse right. than that. So what's wrong with me? So what's wrong with me? That's the thing is so, and not then what's wrong with society? What's wrong, what's with, wrong me? with me? Yeah. yeah. And also, I think women's health across the board, we've all had our challenges around accessing healthcare where we feel like we are being seen fully as a human being and being believed. And we also know that for people of color and especially um, for for black folks, the, you know, the anti-blackness and people um, saying to you, oh, well, they can't be that bad. You can't be in that much pain. Or I think probably what you're dealing with right now is just some anxiety. And so like all the ways that people's um, expertise of their own body is invalidated. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I can't, that can't possibly be true. I mean, I had that experience with my birth stories with my boys. I had two wildly different birthing experiences. My, my first birthing experience with my eldest child was really, really, really hard and challenging. And I would dare say traumatic. And I would say the core 
narrative in that experience was that I was not being believed around my pain levels. I just, I could not get the folk to believe me. They just, and I was like, but this is happening inside of my own body. I need you to believe me. And so when I was pregnant again at 41, I was pregnant at 25 and at 41, I had a completely different approach to being pregnant. My birth plan, Jackie, was like four pages long. I was like, I know there was, I stressed. My my OBGYN organized. Yeah, my OBGYN was like, okay, well, let's just, let's just walk through this. And I was like, I just, just, you know, humor me. She was like, no, it's fine. It's fine. But what I didn't want was to have a similar experience where I was not being believed. And I think that that is across the board for many women or people who have uterus who feel like, I show up at the doctor and the doctor doesn't believe me. And I, yeah. I show up at the doctor and the doctor feels like they don't have time to have a conversation with me. So all of these things are a part of this larger kind of experience around menopause and why it's really important for us who find ourselves um, engaged in this work, right? Like this is mm-hmm. something that we are we are driving and we're we're unpacking for folk is to really give people again permission to say your experience is unique. Mm-hmm. And you are the expert of your body and your own story. And I believe you. Exactly. When you, t- when you tell me that you've experienced X, Y, and Z, I believe you. Absolutely. I think that is super important because I did read somewhere that when women of color go to their doctor, um, not necessarily related to birth, um, but anything, Mm-hmm. Um, you're more likely to be dismissed, mm-hmm. right? And overlooked and in general. So now we have the problem that doctors are not trained in menopause. Right. So they dismiss us anyway, but then you're a person of color. So you're double dismissed. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. It, like what a headache. And mm-hmm. how do you get around that until someone like you comes along and offers this community and platform and education? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I think it's important that I'm learning is that something like menopause, depression, everything, it's not just about the physical thing. Um, it is about societal pressure on that topic and how we feel about dealing with it or talking about it or seeking help. Um, the best correlation I have um, was I did a video a few years ago with mm-hmm. a woman from the US and we talked about breastfeeding and we mm-hmm. talked about in Canada, they really, really push you to breastfeed, to nurse. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And then you add stress onto that because you're being told you need to do this. Like, this is the only way you're going to have a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. And yet when we chatted about this um, in this video, uh, Vanessa said, you know, women, it's a privilege to nurse. Mm. That's for women who get to stay at home, mm. who, who can just pull out their boob at any given moment. What about women who work at like McDonald's and get one 15 minute break? Mm-hmm. And then they're supposed to like, I don't know what they're supposed to do, but then they're supposed to go home with all that stress right. and, and nurse. And the response we got to that video was mind blowing. I think women were so relieved to, to hear it in the context that she said it. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't just about the ability to produce and give milk. Right. This is about having time, having status. This is about having income and stability and a healthcare plan and blah, 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 blah. Like, it's not just about nursing. It's not, I choose to nurse or not. 
there are all these other things that impact the way that we make that decision or the way that our bodies are able to produce. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did a, a documentary interview for this group called Chocolate Milk. And they were talking to black women about their experiences with breastfeeding and nursing. Um, and uh, I talked again about the different experiences where I had with a lactation consultant who t- called my son a lazy nurser. Um, oh, my. Wow. Like a, a baby. I was like, he was literally like two days old. And she came to my room and she said, you're going to have to like be more assertive because he's he's a lazy nurser. I'm like, he just got here. Like, yeah. how, how <laughs> does he also uh, have urinal incontinence? Like, what's <laughs> up? But I, I think that you, you, you really hit the nail on the head around the pressures that are put on us around one thing or the other mm-hmm. and us not being able to. And the us, I mean, women, women identified or whomever to be able to say, I need more information mm-hmm. so I can make a decision that makes the most sense for me. And then when I make that decision, I need you to respect that. Mm-hmm. So whether that is the decision to have a child or not have a child, I need you to respect my decision, whether that's to breastfeed or not breastfeed. I need you to respect my decision. If it's around, I'm now menopausal and I'm trying to figure out, do I want to do the bioidentical therapy or I want to do hormone replacement therapy, if I want to do something more homeopathic, like, or I want to change my, do my whole nutrition, like overhaul and figure out the things that help me feel better. I need you to respect my decision. And I think that probably what we're pushing up against institutionally with doctors and the medical industrial complex is that doctors are told, and there is a culture of, you know, better than anybody. You know better than anybody. And so when you are giving me your medical professional opinion, I take that in consideration. Mm -hmm. That's important. That's why I'm coming to you. I also know ultimately I get to make the decision about my body. And unless you are proving that I have some cognition issue and I might do myself harm, then you Mm -hmm. should respect the decisions that I want to make. I think um, something that, you just said made me think of this, but um, when I recently went for testing for hormone replacement therapy, um, my cholesterol was really high. And that was because I have a familial um, condition, but they put me on a heart medication. And as I was talking to my doctor, I said, oh, I just read this Harvard peer reviewed study that said, you know, heart um, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women over 50 because once we stop producing estrogen, we don't have that protection around our heart or our uterus. Um, that is something many women don't know and they need to go get their cholesterol checked. It led to, I could have gone on the pills, they could have brought my cholesterol down and they could have put me on HRT, but there was something, oh, there was a podcast that we did with this wonderful cardiologist here in Toronto, mm-hmm. Dr. Beth Abramson. And during our conversation with her just about women's cardiovascular health in general, she mentioned some things that triggered um, some questions I had about my test results. So I chose to go see her and I had to have a whole whack of tests done. Those tests wouldn't have been done if I just accepted that Mm -hmm. I was on this pill. Um, But I pushed for them and it turns out I have another issue as well that is hereditary from my daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't go on HRT. And... 
I can't go on ADHD medication. So that's because I pushed and pushed and pushed. Yeah. So if you are a woman of color, a person of color, and you go in and you are being generally overlooked and dismissed, they're probably not going to do that deep dive either. And that's very dangerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the, out, the outcome. That's true. The outcome, you know, when we think about the, the danger of being misdiagnosed or improperly diagnosed, mm-hmm. um, like the, the outcome is we're talking about someone's life. Yes. And so it is important, you know, part of um, the reason why we wanted to do the What's Up Doc conversations is mm-hmm. we wanted to give people an opportunity to hear from doctors like, how to ask the questions, how to advocate, how to have agency, what are some suggestions of what you can do when you've got 15, 20 minutes and you're sitting on that piece of paper on that that seat, like how to engage with the doctor and to also acknowledge that if you are an uninsured or underinsured person, your, your journey is going to be more challenging because you can't vote with your feet necessarily if you find the care that you're receiving wanting, you mm-hmm. know? So what we're trying to do is then like give people suggestions, recommendations, like hacks of things that you can do yeah. and be clear about what your priority is. If you've got a list of three things that you want to talk to your doctor about, What's the thing that's the top priority that you know you want to have addressed? And when you ask the doctor, I have three things that I need to talk to you about. I have one that's a priority. Do you have time for this conversation? And if they say no, then you say, then I need to schedule a time for us to have this conversation after you do the exam. But I need you to know what these these concerns are. The doctor should respond to you in a certain way. And if they don't respond to you in a certain way, that gives you some good information around whether or not you're going to stay with that practice or not. Absolutely. And I think um, I think it is important to have those questions, especially especially around HRT, because Mm -hmm. even though the study we saw a few years ago was sort of dismissed, um, there, there is a there is a risk for certain Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do a deep enough dive, and you go on HRT, you could actually put yourself more at risk for heart, cardio incident, um, I believe stroke. Um, but we we had the opportunity to talk with uh, Dr. Susan Goldstein, who's a doctor mm-hmm. at um, a hospital here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And she has developed a list of questions that both doctors and patients can use to talk to each other. And I will share that with you because- Oh my gosh, thank you, you know, so it's, much. It's not Canada focused, it's just menopause focused. Sure. And it's to help uh, create that dialogue between a doctor and patient, but it also gives women things to ask you might not have even thought about. So That's right. we'll definitely share that with you. Thank you. And maybe you can create your own too. Yes. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for talking to me today after we met on that um, panel discussion a few mm-hmm. months ago. You're a firecracker, but your podcasts <laughs> are amazing. And I love that even I know you're talking about menopause, but you're almost using menopause as the vehicle to open up these more important, as you say, transgenerational mm. stories. Like you're, you're still talking about menopause, but you're actually uncovering this whole sort of environment around it, what it's been like, what it could be like, where it's going. And I think that's really critical in, as you say, developing that new story. 
So Mm -hmm. thank you for everything that you do. Oh, thank you so much, Jackie. I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to come back together and have this conversation. And it, you know, it means a lot to me to also know that there are folk um, who are finding their, their, their lane, finding their offering, finding their work around this menopause thing and that that's happening in Canada and it's happening in the U.S. and the U.K. and I've connected with some folk in Germany and so I just and also some folk in Brazil. So this is definitely, you know, more than the, half the world's population yes. <laughs> will experience this. And so every woman is going through it, right? Right. <laughs> and dodge it. You cannot dodge it. And honestly, I think the earth is menopausal and she's she's had it up to here with us. I and think so, she gave us COVID. That was her eating children thing. <laughs> so y'all need to sit down and be quiet because you're doing way too much. But I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and that we all are we're pushing this needle in a in a in a, a way that it needs to go. A very positive and productive mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. 